You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. What's up, everybody? Episode 145 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast brought to you by GameMat.eu for pre-painted train and beautiful game mats, as well as, speaking of beautiful, uh, my Patreon patrons. They're wonderful. I greatly appreciate you supporting the show. We are talking about how to sell things online for Warhammer. We're talking about that in the Tesseract mailbox. We're talking about the new Blood Knights and their shocking price point on the Want That or Want That Not. And we are talking about how plain smaller games can solve all of your problems in Warhammer. So, we are talking about all those things tonight. What have I been up to? Um, An ungodly amount of work in my personal time. So, I haven't really been able to do a whole lot. But I did get to the club this week. And I played uh, two games of Brutality with my buddy Connor. And I've been itching to play Brutality for a while. He's been bugging me about it for about a month. And uh, just like I've said before about the game clubs, you know, you don't you don't want other games to creep in and take too much uh, real estate from your main games. The club comes to play. So that's why we've kind of put off uh, brutality for a while, because it's a Warhammer group. So I needed to keep a Warhammer group. And if we can sneak off and play some brutality, that's fantastic. That's what we did. Um we played a mission that's a lot of fun, and it's essentially kind of Blood Bowl-esque, but it's a brutality mission. I talked about it at the end of an episode a long time ago, um, where I talked about the lore behind uh, Red Camp in the blur in brutality, and they have this sports sport called Red Camp Rush. And the mission, essentially, is that you both have five players on each side, you, you make your warband, and they get to have all their weapons... They are upgraded as normal and everything, but each person has one ball. And the point is at the end of turn four to have as many people with balls in the opponent's deployment zone. And that's the whole deal. You can still shoot at people, you can charge, you can use powers, all that. Um, The game greatly discourages killing people uh, narratively. So basically you're shooting not to kill, you're trying to knock them out. You're not trying to decapitate people, you're trying to just knock them out and take their ball or whatever. And the neat thing about it is each model can carry two balls. Sorry, I just yawned, had to cut that out. It's called the scrotal rule. And no, it really isn't called the scrotal rule, but that's not a bad idea, actually. And the point is, is when you take an unsaved damage, you drop the ball and people can pick it up. And it was pretty cool. I was able to beat him five to three. I decided to play my Santa Claus warband. I've got Santa Claus with a hatchet and I've got an elf with a crossbow and I've got a snowman with an axe and a wooden shield. I've got another snowman with a giant snowball launcher. And then my last one was, oh, Jack Frost. I've got this, like, elvish guy that's all icy painted. Oh, here comes another yawn. And I'm back. So, um, anyway, Santa Claus rushed across the board. It was pretty cool. And uh, he actually was able to grab someone else's ball as well. And he got me two points at the end of the game. And my crossbow... Um, elf that was running alongside him also got a ball in the deployment zone. And then my axe and shield snowman took someone else's ball and kept his own and brought those two into the end zone. So he got three into mine. I got five into his. It was a fantastic game. Then 
we decided to do a um, tag team gauntlet match. And another yawn. Wow, sorry about that. Anyway, um, we got to play a tag team gauntlet match, which was a lot of fun. And man, we were smoking them at first. We were doing fantastic. I did my um, sword and my axe and shield snowman and Santa Claus. And he did this mech suit guy and uh, his other rampager. And that was our group. And we were acing them. We got all the way down to um, round four. And unfortunately, they kind of kicked our butt at that point. So there was it was kind of a mess. We did actually get to was it round four or five? Actually, I think we yeah, actually we got to round five. We got to round five, which is the last round. And Santa Claus at that point had died, so we said that wouldn't it be fun if he was like the boss at the end. So we made a vampire lord Santa Claus. Another yawn. Sorry, guys. Um. I made a Santa Claus and statted him out as a vampire lord from the Gauntlet Bestiary book. And it was, he, he wrecked our face is what he did. He beat the crap out of us. So yeah, we, we ended up failing the Gauntlet on the last round. So that's kind of sad, but it was a lot of fun and uh, it was great to uh, have some stress relief. So um, that is about it. I think. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I worked just one night this week on the Brutality Supplement. Um, My hours have been insane, so uh, that's why I keep yawning. And uh, that's about it. So I am actually going to go now. And let's get to the next segment before I pass out. Let's open the Tesseract Mailbox. Hey, on this edition of the Tesseract Mailbox, we are answering a message from Ash, and uh, I'm not going to read it because it was kind of a private conversation, but uh, he's got like this weird rash creeping up, and um, it's it's like festering, and every time he scratches it, they they weep. So No, I'm kidding. But I'm not going to read the message because it was kind of a private message, and uh, he was just asking my personal opinion. It wasn't really for the podcast per se, but... Um, he was asking about eBay and selling an army and, you know, what kind of prices he can look for and, and that sort of thing. So I decided, you know what, I've been doing eBay and Facebook groups and all that, buying and selling lots for a long time. And I have quite a bit of information about that from firsthand information. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to give you a short guide to selling on eBay. Okay. Now, this pertains specifically to Warhammer 40k. It also pertains specifically to current edition models. If we're talking about old metal catechins or old Warhammer Fantasy battle models or whatever, they can vary greatly, and it's mostly by their scarcity. If there is something like the GW, the Citadel Giant, they only made 500 of or whatever, of course, that's going to be worth a lot, lot, lot more than a normal giant that they made a ton of. So we're not really talking about that. But if you want to sell your Warhammer, number one, you should probably go through an auction site like eBay, or you can go through Facebook groups. And um, there's many, many different buy-sell groups. Just find them. And um, there's ones for just AOS. There's ones just for 40K. There's ones for uh, both of them. And there's ones for just Wargaming in general. So you can find whatever you need. But 
basically the pricing structure is this is what I've found from anecdotal evidence. If you have an unpainted army, it will actually sell at a slightly higher price and it's more likely to move because then people don't have to worry about either matching your paint scheme or painting over your paint scheme. So unpainted stuff will um, obviously new in box still on the sprue gets the highest price but I'm talking about used armies you've actually used. So um, as that, the way that goes is that if they are assembled, but not painted and they're assembled, not stupidly, like giving them, you know, more weapons than they can in a squad or whatever, um, you can usually get more for them. Now, if your paint job is a moderate paint job, just an everyday paint job, it doesn't affect the price too much, but unpainted will still get slightly higher. Um, it just slightly lowers the price. And then the reverse of that is if it's a really bad paint job, it will greatly depre depreciate the price. And if it's a super high quality, awesome paint job, it's going to really increase the price by quite a bit. But then you're going to have a harder time to sell it because you got to find just the right buyer that likes your paint scheme and wants to buy it all as one lot. So, uh, too long did not read, um, sort of version of this is that on the sprue, obviously new in boxes is, is the highest price assembled and not painted. Then painted moderately is, is almost the same as unpainted. And then painted poorly is a negative painted above is a positive generally. The problem, too, is if you've got some wild paint scheme and people can't replicate your technique because you're a professional painter, that can also hurt your price because people don't want to paint over your paint job, but they also can't replicate it, so then you're going to have a hard time finding a buyer. But potentially you can make some good money off that. Now, if we're actually talking about assembled stuff, generally speaking, the quantity matters a lot as well. So... If you are aiming to sell an entire army, you will always make the most amount of money if you sell them individually as units, not as an entire army. So if you are, um, this is just generally speaking, but you can sell all the individual units to your army at about 30% off MSRP if it's not painted, and about 40% off MSRP if it is painted to a moderate level. Now, if you are talking about selling a whole army at one time, you can generally sell it for about 50% MSRP, is what you can do. If I'm talking if you got 3,000 points of an army, you can generally get about 50% of the MSRP. And the reason why is because, you know, somebody might spend, let's say, $1,000 a year on Warhammer or $2,000 a year if they've got money problems. Um, but they're not going to spend it all at one time. So a lot of times, um, lots that, I mean, you might get $4,000 worth of Warhammer for $2,000 because most people can't just plop down $4,000 on a lot. That's basically what it is. Um, so that's just the way it goes. So, the best thing that you could sell is basically brand new product still in the box at individual units. That's basically. And the worst being a bad paint scheme on an entire army. <laughs> that's, that's basically how that works.
And if you have other things that you don't know what you should price them at, here's a pro tip for eBay that a lot of people don't know. I speak to a lot of people and they don't know this. But if you look under the filters, search what you're going to sell, and then it's going to bring up all the things that people are asking these different prices for. Well, that's not how much they've sold for, though. So it's not just because people are asking this price is not a very good distinction. So what you need to do is go into the filters and do sold listings is what you want to select. And then that will show up how much these lots have sold for or these units or whatever. And you basically filter your search. So if you're going to sell some old Croxagores, you know, type in metal Warhammer Fantasy Battle Croxagore or whatever. And then you will filter that to sold listings and then you'll know exactly how much Oh, this one's three in a, in a lot, or this is one in a lot, and they got X amount for this and X amount for that, and that can greatly help you. Most people don't know that, and for some reason, eBay really, really hides it. I mean, like on the app, when I look on the face on the phone app, you actually have to hit filter, and then you have to see you have to hit see more, and then you can hit uh, completed listings or sold listings. Now, completed listings do not include sold listings. It just means that they were taken off or they ran out of time and didn't sell or whatever. It's just all of the completed listings that sold and didn't sell. But of course you want to select sold listings because that's what they're going for. And that will give you a really good market value idea. So that's basically it. And um, all right, let's go on to the next segment. Want that or want that not? Hey everybody, it is Want That or Want That Not, and tonight I have a shocking twist. A complete shocking twist. The Blood Knights for Soul Blight um, used to be $99 for five of them, and they were, I guess, resin? I think they were fine cast, but anyway, six, uh, $99 for five of them. And now they just released the new set of Soul Blight, Grave Lords, whatever, Blood Knights, and there are five of them for $60. And I know that's still a ridiculous price, right? That's $12 a model, but that is insane that they would lower the price from 100 to 60 and with brand new sculpts. I am actually truly, truly shocked. I don't know what caused them to be $99 before because that always seemed like such a ridiculous price, but... I just knew in my heart of hearts that when they came out with the new Blood Knight models, they would still be $99, because why would they turn that money down? But no, $60 for five of them, which make them totally gettable. It's practically half price. Uh, Not quite, shut up, but it's basically half price. Um, They look beautiful. They're great. I mean, they don't really super knock my socks off. They're just knights in spiky armor, and they've got horses in in armor, and they've got halberds or lances. I mean, there's nothing nothing particularly special about them, but they are pretty good sculpts. And sixty dollars for sixty dollars for five of these is just insane. I am truly, truly in shock. So there's really not much to say about these guys. I do like these sculpts a little more than the old ones. They're slightly less chunky and they're a little more thin and lithe. Like I feel like vampires should be. But other than that, they're kind of kind of basic. They got the same weapon options as before. And actually on that matter, I was talking to my friend TJ and uh, he's got the Soul Blade book already. And 
he says that their weapons, either weapon option is just the same, which kind of always puts a bad taste in my mouth. Like, GW, come on. It's only words on the page, like, to, to make the halberds or the um, lances do something different. I mean, just give them different rules or something. I hate when they throw in different words. That's the same thing they did with my skull takers. And, uh, no, not skull takers. Skull... Skull reavers? Skull... Reapers. Skull reapers for Corn Bloodbound. And, um... They, they used to have, like, demonic swords, and they had all these two or three different types of weapons they could have. And it was really cool because... Like, the demon-possessed sword gave you extra attacks, but it could also hurt you if you rolled bad or something like that. And then the other one did something else, and now it's like, oh, demon-possessed swords and these. They have the same profile. How boring. Yawn, I say. Yawn, GW. But, you know what? I'm not going to go out on a negative note on this. 60 bucks for five of them is totally fine, but comparing that with $99 for five of them, it is fantastic. So... Definitely want that for me, although I know that Blood Knights are such a staple of a Gravelord's army or a Soulblight army, and my friend TJ plays Blood Knights heavily, uh, I don't think I'll be getting them. They're just, they're not special enough to me to be Blood Knights, so, I mean, to, to get them, and meh, but the sculpts are pretty nice, and I cannot believe they took a, took a hit, price-wise. Good day. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. I do believe it is time for Real Talk with the Pentcron, and tonight we are covering Are Smaller Games the Answer? Hmm. I find this also to be a really good way to deal with win at all cost players, and I think it also helps with game balance. So, welcome, friends. You're in Pimpcron's house now, and you're welcome here anytime. But seriously, call first. I ain't no 7-Eleven. So, a while ago, a thought occurred to me, and it really changed my view on Warhammer in general, but specifically 40k at the time. It was one of those deep, existential epiphanies that just shake your worldview to the core. Uh, something along the lines of, you know, why are they called apartments when they're all stuck together? Ah, cha-cha-cha. Or... If a UFO lands on the ground and we find out what it is, does it just become an O? I don't know. I'll let you sit with that one. These are the hard-hitting questions that you have to ask yourself. So I was wondering if we just play too many points. That was my big, deep question. I think maybe we should just play like 1250 points in order to fix many of 40K's problems. And uh, maybe you should just hear me out. Smaller points equal shorter games. And some of you are saying, no duh. Even though I really like to sink my teeth into a several-hour game every once in a while. Um, I find it really refreshing to play a game that is only, like, let's say two hours long. It's fun, but doesn't drag out. We've all played those games that, for whatever reason, take forever. Finally, after five hours of playing, you end up calling it quits at the end of turn three. I've seen friends do this time and time again at the game club. It's like every other week that somebody's like, oh, let's play, let's play 4,000 points aside. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We have no sense of chronology. And when the store finally closes and kicks them out, they didn't get halfway through their game. They didn't get halfway through their game and they're tired and they're burned out. And I, even though they don't admit that, I truly do feel like I see disappointment in their head because they, 
They put all the models out. They made the lists. They set out the terrain. They've started playing. And then if there's no resolution to your game, there's like, what's the point of playing? To be honest, I, I hate not finishing games. If I'm on a time restraint, I will play smaller games because I just want to finish. I want to have a conclusion to the game. And being that there's no real guidelines for how many how many points that you're supposed to play, maybe we have slowly crept up the game in points because everyone likes to play all of the things, basically. So an interesting point is that smaller points, not only is it less time, but smaller points is also more challenging lists. If you think about it, your tax squad in a 1250-point game has a lot more value than your tax squad in a 3,000-point game. Suddenly, your troops aren't just bland meat shields. You'll have to use them to the best of their abilities because there are fewer supporting units to help them, such as artillery or other melee units or whatever. When you have fewer moving pieces in your list, i.e. units, it makes every move and every decision much more important. And when you have fewer units, you have to think much more about how they are kitted out. You might find yourself adding in special weapons to units you normally wouldn't ever add them to. Can you handle flyers? Can you handle armor? Are you mobile for objective taking? In a larger point game, you tend to be more cavalier with your unit choices because it's kind of it, it kind of becomes like a throw everything at them and see what sticks kind of strategy. I've noticed that a few of my friends who are not that great at strategy never, ever want to play smaller games. They want to bring everything and the kitchen sink to the battle, and they hope they can get lucky. Another thing is that, generally speaking, smaller point lists and smaller point games allow less cheese. If you consider taking a detachment that includes HQ and troops, they take up precious points that would normally be used for bigger and nastier units if you're playing more points. If your opponent does choose to bring some nasty units, that's all fine and well, but then they will be less capable of taking objectives and can afford fewer support units for the cheesy ones. So, I know Terminators are not the end-all be-all, but it's kind of like they threw all their points in Terminators and have no fast melee to support them or artillery or whatever because they spent all those points in Terminators. I mean, to be honest, I still don't believe ten a squad of 10 Terminators is worth it. Whether it be cast Space Marines or regular Marines, I just don't think a full squad of 10 Terminators is worth it. If I were to bring 10 Terminators, I'd bring two five-man squads for mobility and all of that. Or... I would just bring one five-man squad is more like it because, you know, it's a specialist unit. It still can get the job done and whatever you throw at it. If it's kitted out with power fists or lightning claws or whatever, it's still going to do something. But I don't like to put all my eggs in one basket. So, um, anyway, they'll be, they will be less able to, you know, take objectives and they can't support, uh, bring other support units that will support the cheesy ones. But even if you're not bringing... HQs and troops and all that, they are still limited in their points compared to a normal game, and it helps cut down on what they can afford to put in their list. Plus, sometimes players take cheese because they want to be competitive, while other times players take cheese to offset their inability to strategize. In the case of the former player, it gives you a better chance of winning against them on your strategic merits if you take them out of their 1850 point comfort zone or 2000 whatever they're used to playing in your club or in your gaming group that will set the tone of the entire game because they will struggle with what units to include and worry that they didn't take the correct ones 
In the case of the latter player, it makes it easier for you to win on strategic merits because they are lacking their throw-everything-at-the-problem crutch, is what they usually like to use. I like games that are won or lost on decisions, and trimming the points down to 1250 puts that really into focus. So at the end of the night, my friends are still on the top of turn two with their humongous game that they will never finish. Meanwhile, I got to finish my game, had to work hard to make my list well, enjoyed a tactically challenging game with a few units I, ha- few units I had, and don't even feel burned out at the end of the night. So who wins there? The bank. The bank always wins. But besides that, in 40k terms, I win. Another thing, this actually works in um, playing smaller games actually is really good against playing WAC players because WAC players are always used to that 1850 or that 2000, whatever is current in your area. And the best thing is, is to take them out of their comfort zone because I've noticed something with competitive people is that they're so worried about losing that they tend to stick in a in a rut like they will always play 1850 points always or they always play book missions always and something like um whenever i have to play a really competitive player to help even the score because i'm not going to bring a competitive list what i'll do is i'll i'll come up with some really random point number like let's play a oh yeah i made a list for uh 1300 you want to play 1300 points and generally they'll go with it but that completely throws them out. Now they're like, oh my gosh, well, I took this net list, which that's another thing, is that net lists are usually in these common point structures. So these people can just copy and paste the list based off that point level, and they didn't put any thought into it at all, but they're just counting on other people to synergize their lists. Meanwhile, you might have taken a list that you came up with yourself, and it's not really a fair game at that point. So, being that they may not have even made the list to begin with, they're really not sure of the synergies of the list once it gets to the battlefield, and then they're not certain what they should take out. And notoriously, they will take out incorrect things. You know, they'll, they'll go for the cheese, but not for the support units or the bread and butter troop units. And another thing that I've noticed is that the highly competitive people do not do well with tactical flexibility. And what I mean is, um, I've got my Pimpcron's Epic War Planner, And that can throw a wrench at you for real um, in the game. There's different missions and things like that, but there's also realm effects and whatever. And it can, you know, suddenly you're playing in a jungle and you've got realm effects for a jungle or a desert or toxic waste or whatever. And that, once they're playing against something that's new and different, they're like all like discombobulated and they've got no idea what's going on. And they, they make really bad choices because they didn't think it through because they're really never thinking anything through because they're taking pre-made lists someone else made, or they're in that tactical rut. They always go to because they feel like it's safe and it's a higher chance of winning because winning is what they're about. Not necessarily having fun. Having fun is winning to them. Whereas having fun is not necessarily winning to all of us, but That's how that goes. So if you have a player, just try this. Seriously, try this because this works for me every time. You have a player that's kind of an asshat, right? And he loves to play competitively. What you should do is pick a random number for your list and, you know, convince him to do the same and go, oh, dude, I only brought, you know, 1400 points. Sorry. And then have him have to cut out of his pre-made list. And then, or, and, or, play like an epic war planner mission or one of the old missions from another edition like the the battle mission planner whatever it's called battle missions 
whatever. It's from 5th edition. I had that book with the different missions in it. And notoriously, if it was not a rulebook mission, they will not make very good decisions because they are so dependent on all those things. Other people making their lists and knowing what the score is as far as the mission goes. It will definitely put you on better, solid ground. That's also a lot of the reason why um, Shorehammer I have at... Guess what points the Shorehammer Highlander game is? Just guess. Yeah, that's right. 1250 points. It's 1250 points. And I require two troops and an HQ and all that. We have our own uh, uh, detachment thing. You're not allowed to take your own detachments. Like, you know, whatever. So, um, and that is a lot of... That actually curbs a lot of the hyper-competitive players from playing at Shorehammer. And it leaves more room for just casual people because... A lot of the hyper-competitive people are like, Oh, 1250 points! Oh god, that's that's not 1850! That's not 1850! And they bury their head in their pillow because they don't know a number less than 1850. And, I mean, what do you get? What, are they supposed to make their own list? Like, that's crazy! So, yeah. That's one of my hurdles I have to filter out the whack players. That and not allowing Forge World. That, <laughs> that gets them every time, too. But I think I'm... Um, I'm digressing a little bit from the topic here. Anyway, try smaller games. Your game will be over faster. You'll enjoy it more. And it's more tactical to choose your lists. And you have to use your units better. And it'll offset your highly competitive friends. It's just a win-win altogether. There's really not a downside to it. Except that you have fewer points. But that's the only downside to that. So, try an 800-point game. Try an 1,100-point game. I mean, it doesn't have to be a round number. Try an 1,143-point game. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening, and thanks for GameAt.eu for supporting the show, and thanks for my Patreon patrons for supporting the show. I'll see you next week.